Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 124, and it's a bloody reckoning that awaits. Last episode, we ended with Hendrik Portita and Sarl Salias riding to try and find a route to Delagoa Bay and then meeting up with Louis Trichard. If you remember, Portita had warned his followers camped at the Sant Rafir not to cross the Vaal River into Mzilikatsi's territory or they'd be attacked. We'll come back to what happened when a small group decided to ignore his orders in a moment. Some explanation is required about the difference between a trekboer and a voertrekker. The drosters or raiders had preceded the voertrekkers, and in many ways they had scarred the landscape and warped the perception of folks who dressed in trousers and carried muskets. The frontiers of mixed race groups that had pushed out of the Cape starting early in the 18th century, more than 100 years before the Voortrekkers had ploughed into the peoples of inner southern Africa. The Voortrekker exodus was one of many in early 19th century treks out of the Cape by indigenous South Africans. There was a northern boundary of the Kora, the Karana, the Griqua, the Bastas and other mixed groups expanding throughout the boundary, speaking an early form of Afrikaans, simplified Dutch, indigenized if you like. They wore hats and trousers and jackets, they rode horses, they were Europeanized and lived a semi-nomadic existence, hunting and raiding. The more ruthless were called the drosters, the runaways, cattle raiders, slave takers. The Urlams, Bergenas and the Hartanas, highly mobile men of the frontier. They even rode oxen when they couldn't get horses. They had based their military organization on the Trekboer's commando, so by the time the Voortrekkers crossed into this country, then Debele and other groups knew these were extremely versatile individuals, steeped in the knowledge of the felt. But at the same time, the trekboers were not just trekboers anymore, they had become voortrekkers. The boers had developed an extremely effective technique which was copied by the drosters before they set off into the interior. When attacked, they fired on the enemy from a distance, avoiding hand-to-hand combat. They would use their horses to ride off, then dismount and fire back, mount their horses once more and ride further, repeat the action. The commander usually rode with a very minimum of equipment and supplies to maximize the advantage of mobility and surprise. They used their horses to escape if the situation developed, making a swift tactical withdrawal to their convoy, which were the ox wagons. These served as a moving base, the HQ, and they would draw these up in a tight all-around defensive formation, lashed together end-to-end, a lager, which then became an improvised fortification. They would lay thornbush, mormosa, in front of the wagons and use cowhide tied under the wagons to restrict access, and from there the Boers would unleash a devastating all-around fire. The fact that the wagons were in a circle meant they could never be outflanked, always the greatest risk when cruising along in the open felt. But these lagers had to be large. Smaller lagers were far more fragile when attacked by hundreds of men, A dozen Boers inside these small lagers could keep hundreds of warriors away for only so long before their rate of fire was overcome by the flood of men from all sides. But a few dozen Boers could withstand an attack by thousands of men armed only with spears. Most of these attacks would be launched directly at the lagers. This is not how the Amakosa fought the Boers, because they never did go to war in the same way. But it was how the Indibele and the Amazulu were going to fight. Previously, the Boers were deployed by the English to track and raid the Tkosa, 
But the Khosa fought a guerrilla war. They fought a war of tactical retreat into the Albany thickets. The Amat Khosa and the Boers used tactical retreat in the same way. Both were different from the Zulu. Later annals would somehow lump these two groups together just because of the color of their skin. Bad mistake when it comes to military matters. The Zulus in Indibeli and others who were going to face the new threat on the felt did not have a long history of fighting the Dutch and the English and did not really understand how to avoid suicidal full frontal attacks on entrenched positions. They were mushismo to the max, believing that a kind of furious sprint towards the enemy would overcome anything. It took a very long time before some of these traditional military practices were changed. The structure of the Zulu kingdom and its Amabuto system just did not allow for flexibility. The Boers had another system which was perfected in the open plains of southern Africa. They would ride out to within range of a large group of warriors, an Ubuto, and fire on them while keeping a sharp eye out for possible outflanking maneuvers. The warriors would persist in a massed frontal attack, and the Boers would ride and retreat in two ranks. The first would dismount, fire, remount, and retire behind the next line of men who would repeat the action. They would load as they rode. Some could do this in less than 20 seconds, or they would hand their rifles to their basta achtereyes who would then hand them their second musket, increasing the volume of fire. They would then draw the enemy into the range of the rest of the Boers inside the lager. These would lay down a deadly fusillade, usually stalling the enemy's assault and demoralizing the attackers. Sensing victory, the assault force inside the lager would then ride out, routing the enemy. Furthermore, the Furtrecker leaders were those who had the greatest military understanding. This was the initial key to the success of the Great Trek, but also part of the political shattering that occurred. Later, these groups could barely agree and ended up forming two different countries called the South African Republic or the Transvaal and the Free State. But that's for another day. Because each of the Voortrekker leaders deployed a military solution to most problems, this led to a kind of superficial political authority where groups of followers could very easily decide to head off in support of another leader. Similar, by the way, to how Mushweshwe or Sikonyela had been operating, or even men like Dingan and Mzilikazi. They were followed only as long as they were successful. Because each of these ambitious Boer leaders had their own preference regarding locations for settlement, there was no single political authority that emerged during the Great Trek. The Voortrekkers hankered to return to the laissez-faire of the old frontier days. They wanted a renewed sense of freedom and independence on a wide continent, to live by a patriarchal code of justice, mollifying any humanitarian concepts from the British government, avoiding restrictions. They said they wanted to preserve what they called proper relations between master and servant. The surge in pioneering expansion was motivated partially by the need to move away from the violence aimed at them by people like Andre Stockenström, who focused on their behavior towards the Khoisan and colored servants. Protection, by the way, which was now enshrined in Cape Law. They wanted to dispense justice as they saw fit, cutting themselves off from the restraining influence of liberal and humanitarian principles gaining traction in Britain. The recriminations aimed at them by the liberals in England had embittered the Boers. It was unjust, they said. The divine compact for their mission was strengthened by their culture, predominantly Dopper, rigidly adhering to devotion, the unassailable conviction of a pact with God, renewed daily through solemn pledges. The Doppers were very religious and dressed the same way. There was also an honor code manifested in the self 
and this code was supposed to be adhered to by all future generations. Compare that to the early Trekboers and its chalk and cheese. The earlier men had rolled across Kozaland into marrying, living far from churches. Most could not read, and they did not see the Koza as implacable black enemies, rather as allies. Once they'd figured out Amakosa internal political differences, they allied themselves with different Koza chiefs against other Koza chiefs. They fought with the British against the Koza, it is true, but that was later, in the 1800s. In the 1700s, the Trekboers had gone forward into the interior as individuals, leapfrogging without any sense of community. For example, Graf Reinet, the most forward village far from Cape Town, was beset by factional disputes. The Voortrekkers departed from these eastern and northeastern locales in more cohesive groups bound by religion, whereas the Trekboers of earlier times had been far more isolated, small nuclear families roaming the vastnesses, the Karoo, the scrublands, the men often taking Khoi and Khoisan mistresses or wives. The earlier frontiers men were like hillbillies facing off against each other sometimes, squabbling with their neighbours. The new moral code that imbued the Voortrekker way demanded conformity. It knitted the groups together, and there would be no compromise or adaption of the Khoi or Khoza way of life that had characterised earlier trekkers. John Fairburn's South African commercial advertiser ran a letter in 1836 which reported that the Voortrekkers fancy they are under a divine impulse, and went on, the women seem more bent on it than the men. Considering what the men had been up to for almost two carefree centuries, marrying whomever they wished, perhaps the Trekboer women had reason to demand a strict adherence to social mores. Anna Stienkamp, the wife of a Voortrekker, put it succinctly when she said it wasn't just the increased freedoms the British guaranteed blacks that drove the Boers away, Writing about the emancipation of the slaves, she complained of the Khoisan and the blacks that, being placed on an equal footing with Christians, contrary to the laws of God and the natural distinction between race and religion, so that it was intolerable for any decent Christian to bow down beneath such a yoke, wherefore we rather withdrew in order to preserve our doctrines in purity. These days, the DNA test is available for anyone who thinks they're pure, whatever that means. Nothing is pure, even blue eyes are a mutation, let alone, God forbid, ginger hair. Purity is often bandied around by folks who secretly suspect they are the descendants of miscegenation. Anna Sternkamp was a truly remarkable woman. Her influences were based on the religious literature of German pietism and devotional literature of Dutch Second Reformation authors. They believed in isolation and a strict code based on piety. Where the concept of piety had drained away somewhat in Germany by the early 19th century and had been replaced by more secular-orientated chronicles, in the Netherlands, pietism flourished from the mid-18th century well into the 20th century. In some places in South Africa, a form of pietism continues to this day. Anna Steenkamp's journal is an example of a family chronicle with descriptions of her life and adventures during the Great Trek, although written slightly later. They are remarkable. She was born in 1797 and died in 1891, an incredibly long and no doubt pious life. A woman who experienced an almost fantastic emergence of her folk from a thinly scattered people to a powerful echelon 
geopolitically important, substantially historic. Anna Steenkamp was also the niece of Piet Ratif, who was to die violently at the hands of Dingaan. For the voortrekkers, the old sensual dispensation which marked Trekpoor and Kosa relationships was eradicated, and with it, the sense that there was nothing wrong with love across the colour lines. The easy-going ways were rammed shut by piety, and therefore secure from intrusions by humanitarianism. For that, you can thank the Sixth Frontier War in part, where the racial viewpoint had been so unequivocally articulated for the first time. These viewpoints were going to be reinforced by a journalist and editor called Robert Godlinton, who enunciated it for the Boers and the English 1820 settlers. And these loose patterns, flexible, were shifted into patterns formed on militantly precise lines. When the Voortrekkers set sail on the felt, they saw the wide expanses of freedom open up before them. Some left valuable and beautiful farms for this enterprise. Some of these were sold for the value of a bulldog and a wagon. Others just gave them up for nothing. Most that were sold went for a pittance. The herds of game provided meat, milk from their cows, was churned naturally in wooden bales on the backs of the wagons. Bread was baked in termite nests. Life wasn't so bad, if you lived long enough. As you heard last episode, Hendrik Pothita and Sarl Salir had now arrived at the Val River and across the river, Indibeli King Mzilikatsi ruled the roost, or at least he ruled what would become known as the Transvaal, the land across the Val. After several weeks of searching for a route to Delago Bay, Porchita and Silius gave up and returned to the Sotpansbach. They had made it as far as Zimbabwe. The descendants of Kunrad the Base lived around the Sotpansbach. His sons Durs and Gabriel Base had dropped the D from their names. They were mixed race. Their mothers were Khoi. They were Boers, however, and guided Porchita along part of his journey. It was shortly afterwards, on the 16th of August, 1836, that the sad news was received that every man, woman and child in the Van der Rensbach trek had been killed. Louis Trichard had been out searching for them and then had his own lucky escape. He had ridden off with some of his men following the Limpopo River east towards its confluence with the Ulifants River when he met the chief of the Mahwamba people. While sitting in the homestead of the chief, the men spotted a telescope and a mirror that belonged to the Van der Rensbachs. When pressed about the origin the Mahoma people said they had bartered the items from other tribes further east, and Trechar asked about the fate of Van Rensburg. Eventually, the Mahoma said they had heard the trek party had been killed upriver. On Trechard went and came to a second Magwamba kraal, where Van Rensburg had passed a few months earlier. These people had been interacting with the traders from Delago Bay for centuries and had seen slave traders at work. Chief Sakana of the Magwamba suggested to Louis Trechard that he should rest his weary head. Before returning to his camp, it was dark and there were lions around. Trichard smelled a rat, dashed back to his camp, telling the chief before he left they would pick up the trail in two days. That bought the Boers some time. The chief thought he had another day to organize his warriors for an attack. When he returned to his camp, Trichard found a group of vendor men waiting for him. They said they had word of a possible attack by the Magwamba and offered to help him defend their wagons. The next night, the Magwamba warriors crept into Trichard's camp, passing his son Carolus, who was hiding in nearby bushes, along with the vendor fighters. As soon as the warriors were within range, the vendor burst out of the bush, throwing their assegais, and Carolus opened fire. The Magwamba ran away. 
Trichard headed back to the Sotpansburg, shaken but alive. Meanwhile, carnage. During Portkeeter's absence, two groups of footrekkers and forty wagons had ignored his warnings and decided to cross the Val into the enticing countryside to the north, near where the town of Parais is today. Then they turned left and headed down the north bank, or in other words, westwards. They were travelling slowly through the most delightful grasslands, which were empty of human habitation. What they didn't know, as I've explained, is that this was part of Mzilikatsi's march, his buffer zone against both the Isizulu and the Drostas. Anyone crossing here without his permission was deemed the enemy, and he had ordered his outlying Ibuto to inform him of anyone who did so. Mzilikatsi's scouts duly arrived at his homestead near modern-day Zerist on the 15th of August, 1836, with the news that an entire town appeared to have crossed over. The Fuertrekkers didn't come as a raiding party. They were moving lock, stock and smoking barrel. They had all their herds, their possessions, their women and children. They were moving in. Not only that, but they were what the scouts called Considerable numbers of the trekkers now on both sides of the Vaal, territory Mzilikasi considered to be his. The chief had told the British through his emissary in Kumbati that he would attack anyone who entered his land from the east or the southeast. And that is precisely what Portkita's ill-disciplined footrekkers had done. This was not a Drosta raid, but a full-on invasion, and they clearly wanted to settle permanently in his territory, or at least he thought so. The scouts told him, Zilikazi, that the Fuertrekkers had already negotiated land treaties with other African leaders south of the Vaal, who were now allowing them a space to settle. It was true. Sekunyani, Morocco, even Moshweshwe had granted space south. Here was the certitude clash I spoke about last episode. An African machismo smack bang up against a Fuertrekker machismo. Both were military movements at their core. Both had a worldview that could not entertain the other. Mzilikasi demanded their tribute. They demanded his land. This was going to get bloody rather quickly. It was a tad ironic that the first people that the Enderbele picked on were not actually these Fuertrekkers per se. On the 26th of June, 1836, Stephanus Petrus Erasmus had left his farm in the northeastern section of the Cape Colony to go elephant hunting across the Orange River. At least that was his story when he applied for permission from the local felt cornet to be allowed to embark on his hunting mission. The truth is, Erasmus was actually specking out possible land for settling, but he wasn't part of the large Fortrekker parties of Porquita and Salirs. Wrong place, wrong time. Mzilikazi selected his best commander, Kalipi, to lead the regiment of 500 men. Watching the warriors gathering and receiving their orders were members of the American Missionary Society who were living with Mzilikazi. Some had arrived as early as 1832 and had settled at his chief homestead, Mosecha. They knew what was going on and were terrified by what they saw. Stephanus's hunting party had included his three sons, as well as young Klaassen, Karl Krieger and Peter Becker and his son, along with Khoisan's servants. They had also crossed over the Vaal, then split into three groups, leaving the servants to look after their five wagons, their cattle and their horses. The first day's hunt didn't go well for Erasmus and one of his sons, so they decided to return to camp that evening, tired, after a long day in the saddle. Frustrated, there were no elephants. As they approached the camp, 
they saw with horror that about five hundred Indibeli warriors had surrounded their servants and the wagons. There was no sign of Erasmus's two other sons or Karl Krier. Klaassen, Peter Becker and his son had somehow escaped in the third group, but in the melee, Klaassen had ridden off alone and was never seen again. Presumably, the Indibeli caught up with him somewhere. Erasmus and his surviving son wheeled their horses about and galloped away from the scene, heading towards a nearby Boer camp. Five hours of hard riding later, they arrived at the camp, which was 30 kilometers away up the Val, almost directly opposite where the town of Paris is today. It's a natural crossing point. The river offers an excellent spot to ford. After warning the large group of trekkers they were in danger, the Indibeli were on the warpath. Erasmus begged the trek leader Johannes Ludovicus Petrus Boerter and Hermanus Stein to help them search for his missing sons and Karl Krier. Early the next morning, the search party set off, but didn't get very far before they spotted the same 500 Indibeli jogging in their direction. This army stopped and blocked their path. The Boers dismounted and fired at the Indibeli in the classic commando technique, then raced back to the camp to warn the others trouble was coming. A young boy... Diedrich Franz Krier was herding sheep nearby. They scooped him up and carried him to the safety of the wagons. It took a few minutes, but the Boers managed to pull the wagons into a lager, Boerte and Stein yelling commands, and moments later the flood of warriors slammed into them. Erasmus's surviving son was caught outside but managed to gallop away. He wanted to warn the Liebenbach-led group about five kilometers up the river who were in danger of an impending attack. Back at the main lager on the land, which became part of the farm called Kopis Kral, the Voortrekker commander Boerter led the defences. He'd been nominated commandant by Portgieter in the elder's absence and of course had committed a terrible mistake by crossing the Vaal. It was too late for recriminations. His tiny defensive force numbered just 35 against 500 in Dibele. For the first time in southern African history, a military society like the Ndebele were going to face off against a Boer lager. Mzilikasi's men had never seen the sort of contraption, but they weren't deterred. It was static. They were mobile. There were only a handful of Boers inside. What chance did they have against the powerful might of the Indibeli warrior kingdom, they thought. The attack began at 10 on the morning of the 23rd of August, with the Indibeli launching across the felt, being shot down, retreating and repeating. This continued for six hours until 4pm, but the Indibeli just could not break into the lager. During a lull at one point, those inside the battered lager watched in amazement. Oxen, still tethered and linked to a wagon disselboom, rushed past along with a group of horses. A disselboom is what is used to attach oxen to an ox wagon, and this, they knew, had to belong to the Liebenbach party. That spelt disaster. By the time the Battle of Kopis Kral or Val Rafir Slach was over, 150 Interbele, half a dozen Khoi and coloured servants and one Boer were dead. Then Debele reluctantly withdrew, seizing over 1,000 head of cattle as they went. Adolf Bronkost was the only person to die inside the lager. The survivors, however, knew what that Dusselboom had meant. The Liebenbachs must have been massacred. But there was also a miraculous escape. More about that next episode. If you want to send an email, you can reach me at desmondlatham.blog or contact me on Twitter at deslatham. Until next... Tot ziens.